0: Well, good morning again. Glad that you're here. Thank you for being here. Little theologians, pay attention. You ready? Little theologians. He is risen. There were an awful lot of big theologian voices there. So it's a resurrection passage, isn't it? It's a resurrection passage, and yet it's not Easter. We're going to look at uh, the resurrection again uh, here soon. But we're in Mark chapter 16. And we're going to look this morning at just verses 1 through 8. And little theologians, i like for you to be uh, thinking and maybe even uh, drawing a picture of a, a really large object that casts a small shadow. You know, if the sun is in just the right place, something really big like a tree, when you see its shadow, it can look like just a little twig. Or imagine uh, a big bear. And its shadow, if the sun's in the right place, that big bear can look like a little puppy dog. Or the shadow of a big mountain, if the sun's in just the right place, can make that mountain look like a little anthill. Draw that. Something big. Casting a very very small shadow. And the something big is the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. And sometimes in our life, we can live as if that resurrection, as big as it is, is actually very small. Something big casting a small shadow. Mark chapter 16 verses 1 through 8 is what we'll be looking at. Please join me in prayer first and then we'll read. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, thank you for making yourself known, uh, your uh, very uh, characters made known uh, in this passage. Thank you also for the picture of sanctification that is uh, happening in the lives of these women. Uh, may it uh, shed light uh, on our own sanctification. Teach us by your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. It's Mark chapter 16, verse 1. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of our Lord. Well, good morning again. This is a a very challenging passage, and uh, in fact, next week's passage uh, will be very challenging as well. Next week we will uh, finish Mark's Gospel. And if I'm just really honest with you... Next week's sermon wasn't in my sermon series until maybe three weeks ago, maybe four weeks ago. Mark chapter 16 verses 9 through 20, how Mark's gospel closes in most all of our Bibles, those very verses are actually very difficult to prove historically. Now we'll do it, I'll be preaching from that passage, but what I'm asking you to do this morning... Is to just consider if possibly verse 8 was the last verse in Mark's gospel. We don't know for sure. There could be some other ending associated that goes beyond verse 8, but it could also be that verse 8 is the last verse. Let me use my uh, space in the introduction before I begin with our first uh, main point to just offer some very quick background as to uh, why uh, there is uh, such disagreement with regards to uh, verses 8 and then 9 and following. You know, we don't have the original text of the uh, Old and New Testament. Did you know that? we don't have the actual text that Isaiah wrote for uh, his book. But what we do have is we have an extraordinarily profound testimony of the accuracy and authority of uh, Scripture. So just using as an example the New Testament, we have about 5,000 fragments and copies and manuscripts between AD 135 and 1200. 5,000. So you may not think, I mean you may not just know if if that's a lot or if that's not very many at all. It's profound. We have more textual evidence for the New Testament and the Old Testament. We're looking at the New Testament. More textual evidence, more security of authorship in the New Testament than we do for, let's say, uh, Homer's Iliad or Virgil's Aeneid. Is that surprising to you? From from a textual perspective, Christian or non-Christian, It's an enormously secure testimony that what we have is the New Testament Scripture. But there are problems along the way. And what we're looking at in Mark chapter 16 is what one scholar named James Edwards calls the most notorious exception. And he says, what, what, the reason that is, is that Mark chapter, six, chapter 16 verses 9 through 20 uh, has become known as the longer ending of Mark, but it's really hard to pin down where this longer ending of Mark has come from. There's a couple of old manuscripts that are very, very reliable, uh, full agreement, and they actually are lacking verses 9 through 20. That's really the problem. Some really, mature, really trustworthy manuscripts are actually lacking nine and on. And, you know, that's a bit of a difficulty for us. I mean, we can look at some old commentators, Clement of Alexandria and Origen. I know we don't normally speak this technically, but we can go all the way up to uh, the middle of the third century AD, and we have evidence of these great scholars that are uh, reading and, uh, and preaching from God's Word, and they don't seem to know anything about Mark chapter 16 verses 9 through 20. To them, Mark's gospel ends at verse 8. And it's not until the 400s where we get this manuscript that has this slightly uh, longer ending. But even early commentators, they're looking at Mark's gospel and they're saying, yeah, it really ends at verse 8, but there is this later edition beginning at verse 9. So, This is really technical. I don't normally uh, introduce sermons this way, but I think it's important for us because I'm going to ask you to do something that is legitimate, but it's still a little weird. Think for a moment this week that the end of Mark's gospel is 16 verse 8. Now, of course, next week don't do that (laughs) because I'll be preaching Mark 16, 9 through 20. But I want you to just imagine that what what if this was the uh, very last verse? Because when you look at uh, Mark 16, verse 8, what do you see there? And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Period. Is that a successful ending to Mark's gospel or not? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, keep that in mind. But what what this passage is indeed telling us is that even for followers of Jesus, even for followers of Jesus, those who are mature and profess faith in Jesus, even for followers of Jesus, the resurrection is an astonishing reality that is easier to believe than it is to apply. If Mark 16 ends at verse 8, I think this is what we're learning That even for followers of Jesus, the resurrection is an astonishing reality that is easier to believe than it is to apply. Let's begin with those first three verses, and I want us to all be on the same page and see that these women are actually devoted to Jesus. Notice what they want to do. Uh, They want to anoint the body of Jesus, and I want us to hear in this that this is a response of piety. We're going to begin by looking at a sinner's devotion to Jesus, the first three verses. I think these women are very devoted to Jesus. Love him, believe him, but they're still sinners. And in verse 1, we see that they bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. This isn't to embalm the body, which would be the Egyptian custom. It's to perfume the body so that um, it would uh, smell fragrant even as it's in the process of decomposition. And, and keep this in mind, they're, they're almost three days too late. So when they go to anoint the body of Jesus, they know, they know that that body is going to smell horrible. The stench would be almost unbearable. Uh, one, com- one commentator says this alone is evidence that these women are very, very devoted. To go and anoint a body that has already been in the tomb as long as Jesus' body, this commentator says would be an expression of intense Devotion you see also in the beginning of the passage, they honor the Sabbath. They're not doing this on the Sabbath. This would be a work. They're waiting for the Sabbath to be passed. Jesus, uh, remember, Jesus died on the afternoon of Friday. And then he was placed in the tomb before sundown. Sundown would be uh, the beginning then of the Sabbath day, uh, Saturday. And then Jesus was in that tomb the latter part of Friday, all day Saturday. And then, when uh, the day after the Sabbath, the first day of the week, Sunday, which began actually at sundown, Saturday evening, Jesus was in the in the tomb then as well. That's the counting, by the way, of the three days: Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Three days. But they honor the Sabbath, don't they? And and notice that they're really deliberate, because in verse two, they're going very early in the morning, very early in the morning. The, the, the day actually began at sundown the previous day, but they're, they're going right at the rising of the sun, and they're persistent. You notice that they have a problem, right? So they bought spices, right? Good planners. They, had, they bought spices, and they know where they're going, right? Because they saw where Jesus was laid, but they still have a problem, and this problem isn't resolved during the journey, and they're still doing it. What's the problem? How are we going to roll that stone back? How are we going to do that? Well, rather than come up with a game plan or bring a couple of big uh, tufts with them, they just do it. They just go. We don't know how we're going to roll the stone back, but we're going to, we're going to do this. And, and I want us to understand that these women are actually showing beautiful devotion to Jesus. There's more evidence. The, uh, last week that I preached in verse 41, yes. If you look back uh, up in the passage to uh, Mark uh, 15, verse 41... What does Mark uh, go out of his way to tell us about these women? That these women have been following Jesus since Galilee. That they have ministered to Jesus. And that they were actually present with Jesus when he came up from Jerusalem. You see that in verse 41. So all this I think is evidence that, that, that Mark is giving to us so that we wouldn't doubt for a second that these women are devoted to Jesus. They love him. They sat under his teaching and they believed him. Now, it's important for us to see this biblical evidence and to say that. Mark doesn't want us to doubt for a second that they are devoted to Jesus. However, they did hear Jesus predict that he would die and be raised from the dead. The angel's going to make this clear. They did hear that. And though they're followers of Jesus, and they believe Jesus, and they love Jesus, even though they heard Jesus say, I will die and be raised from the dead, what are they going to do right now? That wasn't a great pause, but I needed a drink. Right now, they're going to anoint a body that shouldn't be there. I mean, do we all see that? They're going to anoint a body but the body really shouldn't be there. They're showing great piety, but they're showing a kind of piety that allows for the resurrection to not be something, not be real, not be worth believing. Something is up. Great piety, but the piety doesn't seem to be great enough To believe in the resurrection. They believe in the gospel, but they're doing something that seems contrary to gospel belief. And I I want us to park here for a bit and just think about that. They believe in the gospel. These women, by the way, I, I believe are professing believers. That's why we've spent this time. They are regenerate, professing believers. But they believe in the gospel. In such a way that they're doing something or allowing themselves to do something that seems, from our perspective, contrary to the gospel. What are we to make about this? I think this is worthy of some thought this afternoon. Those of you who profess faith in Jesus Christ, sometimes you live as if the gospel, well, has no application for you. Isn't that interesting? I know that about myself. I love Jesus. I have been a follower of Jesus for many years, but sometimes I live my life as if the realities of the gospel aren't realities at all. I'm drawing a distinction between what we believe and how we behave, or a distinction between um, what we believe and then how we function within that belief. Sometimes outsiders can look at us, and if they hear our profession of faith, they might wonder how it is that you profess that faith, and act as you do. It's important to park here because I really think this is, this is a struggle for us. Again, we're assuming that Mark ends his gospel at verse 8. And maybe Mark is being really probing right here even before he gets to verse 8. And I, and I'm, and I'm, I don't mean to belabor this, but I do mean to belabor this because I think there's something important here about our own walk. There's something about the, the faith of these women that ought to tell us something about our own faith. Do you believe in the gospel? Do you believe that Jesus will return? Do you believe that he will destroy the work of sin forever? Do you believe that he will utterly dissolve every doubt, every tear, every illness? Do you believe that he will restore and renew all that's damaged? Do you believe this? Where did I lose you? Were you with me the whole way? Do you believe all of that? Then why is it that sometimes we are riddled with anxiety? And why is it that sometimes we are storing treasure after treasure after treasure as if there's no such thing as a future treasure given to us by the hand of God? Why are we anxious? Why do we worry? Why are we depressed? why do we still behave as if God is actually not in control if we believe in the gospel and that Jesus will return and make all things right? Let me push this just a little bit further. This is still main point one. The next two are short. But let me push this a little bit further. Are you concerned about what's happening in Ukraine right now? I'm very concerned about what's happening in Ukraine. I have been glued to the news this week I'm not a news kind of person and I'm not even a historian but I know that something similar to this happened in Poland in 1939 and I can't shake that out of my mind and here we are watching the news tanks rolling in and exacting punishment on innocent people and it's, it's playing out in front of us. We could all have a bowl of chips in our lap and watch it. It's staggering to me. I'm concerned for the church in Ukraine. I'm concerned for those who profess faith in Ukraine. And what they are witnessing and, and what they are experiencing right now. But I believe that Jesus will come again. And that he will right all wrongs. I believe that God is sovereignly in control, and he knows and loves his followers far better than I. I know that when our Lord and Savior comes, there will be uh, voices proclaiming his return, knees on the ground, praise issued up for the return of Jesus Christ, and that will be happening in Ukraine as well. Do you see what I mean? Belief in the gospel ought to apply to how we think about life and how we live in life. And I I just for a moment, I want, I want you to consider that maybe your devotion is a lot like the devotion of these women. It travels and fits and starts. Sometimes it's a little bit irrational. Sometimes what comes out of our lips, belief in the gospel, isn't always exhibited in our actions or in our thoughts. If we can come to that conclusion with verses 1 through 3, look what happens in verse 4. We see sinners being devoted to God in 1 through 3, but we see God being devoted to us in verses 4 through 7. What do they see when they arrive at the tomb? Lo and behold, a work has been done before they arrived. Someone else has arrived and pushed that that stone away. It's not just fortunate, it's evidence of God's work. They enter the tomb in verse 5. This is what you would do if you were there to anoint a body. Uh, Archaeologists who know this sort of thing say that every tomb would have an opening that's maybe two or three feet high. So they'd have to uh, duck down to stand inside this tomb. And once they were inside, it would be uh, six feet by six feet and six feet high. They'd have to uh, actually climb into this tomb. And they do so, so desirous they are to anoint the body of Jesus. And the stench well, they would have expected the stench to be mighty. But as they come in this six foot by six foot space, Mark tells us that they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe. Mark surely is referring to a robe that is dazzling in its brightness. This is an angel of God. This is a messenger of God ministering God's will and he's right in their face. Six feet by six feet. He's right in their face. And verse five says they were alarmed And they should be alarmed. The word that's used there is unique. They're amazed. They're in awe. And I want us to understand a couple of things inside this tomb before we step out of the tomb and into verse 8. The first thing I want us to understand is that this angel is commending the character of God. It's a little miniature sermon. The angel is commending the character of God. Don't be alarmed. He sees their amazement and he tells them, don't be alarmed. Be calm. And really, he's saying, be rational, thoughtful. And he, he knows exactly what they're up to. You seek the G, Jesus of Nazareth who's crucified. He knows where their heart is, even though they're pursuing a slightly uh, crooked path, aren't they? He knows they're in the wrong place. And, and this angel seems to say to, the, say to them tenderly, he is risen. He's not taken. He's not missing. He's Risen. And they even offer some evidence to the women. Uh, look at verse 6. He is not here. See, look at the place where they laid him. It's empty. The first thing the angel does is commends the character of God. God is patient. He's gentle with these women. God loves the followers of Jesus even though their devotion is feeble sporadic. Notice that there's no admonition for these women other than don't be amazed. There's no admonition. You're here. You were told you wouldn't be here. Why are you here? Seriously? This is your faith? That would be me. He told you wouldn't be here. Why are you here? I knew you'd be here. That's why I'm here. I knew you'd be here. But the angel commends the character of God and his character is patient and genuine and gentle. And second, the angel commends the word of God. Notice this, that the angel gives them instructions. Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. But don't forget a part of of the angel's instruction. The angel says, just as he told you. The angel is not speaking on his own authority. The angel is speaking on the authority of Jesus, captured by the words of Jesus. Is that not what we have in Holy Scripture? We have the words of Jesus. And the angel is really saying, go read the Bible. Jesus told you this. You heard this. And the angel is actually quoting Jesus' very words in Mark chapter 14, verse 28. Actually quoting Jesus. It's so beautiful. This angel commends the character of God, his gentleness and his patience. And this angel commends the word of God, that God desires to be known and so he speaks to you. Now we're ready for verse 8. Verse 8 we get to see the sinner's devotion again, the devotion of these women and their devotion, it seems to be renewed. I mean, look what's happened. The character of God and the word of God has been shown to them in this tomb. Now, their devotion really ought to be renewed. Is that what we see in verse 8? I think that we do. But scholars disagree. And I'm not a scholar. Is verse 8 positive or negative to you? We can actually debate this. Sometimes I could go both ways, but I'm going to argue that verse 8 is actually positive. That if Mark finishes his gospel at verse 8, what he intends is he intends for Roman Christians who are reading this gospel account of the life of Jesus, who know that Jesus was resurrected, Mark is writing and addressing to his congregation so that they would actually be encouraged in their walk of faith. Notice that the women are uh, trembling in verse 8. It's not necessarily negative. They could be awestruck. Paul says that Christians actually come to faith in Jesus in fear and trembling. Paul says that his own preaching ministry was done with fear and trembling. We're commanded to obey our masters with fear and trembling. And Paul tells us that God works out our sanctification and we are to cooperate in that sanctification in fear and trembling. So trembling, that could be positive. They're awestruck. And in astonishment, that certainly can be positive And it's used positively in scripture. People were astonished with Peter and John when they healed the lame beggar in Jerusalem. Sometimes astonishment happens um, in times of prayer. Uh, the word for ecstasy comes from this word for astonishment. Like an ecstatic prayer trembling and astonishment these actually can be positive facets of these women's life and then that very last line I think is the hardest you should you should find it to be the hardest as well they were afraid they were afraid this that phrase actually sounds the most negative to me in verse 8 but I think that it still can be read with a positive quality for they were afraid could be understood that they were filled with reverence It doesn't feel like that, perhaps, but it could be filled with reverence. And then period, the end of Mark's gospel. That's really challenging to me. I hope it's challenging to you as well. If Mark's gospel ends at verse 8, what is Mark actually saying? We're showing us a a slight change in the uh, intentions of these women. Earlier in the morning, these women exercised a devotion that was very well planned. In verses 1 through 3, wasn't their devotion so well planned? They knew exactly what they were doing. They had to make a purchase in advance. The time of day is given. They're thinking about what will happen when they arrive. On one level, verses 1 through 3 show the kind of devotion that is filled with uh, a human-orientedness. The planning. But the devotion in verse 8, do you see any planning in verse 8? It's not like that at all. The women are being devoted, but it actually is entirely other-oriented. You know, maybe there's a lesson for us in our walk. When we walk as Christians, sometimes we take a, a human measurement of our faith and we just apply it to all things spiritual. But our faith is so astonishing, isn't it? It may be astonishing that you uh, get a job promotion after you prayed or astonishing that um, you were sick and now you feel better. But how astonishing is it that God has come to us in Jesus Christ? How astonishing is this thing called the resurrection? You know, in the resurrection of Jesus, I actually get to taste my own resurrection. Because of his resurrection, I have a resurrection that's on the coattails of his own. And it may be that verse 8 is a wonderful picture of the Christian life. It is a life that is filled with astonishment and awe and reverence, and we're trembling because it, the gospel is just so exquisite in its beauty, absolutely beyond my imagination, aesthetically and otherwise. That may be what Mark is teaching us about faith. There's a problem, though, isn't it? They said nothing to anyone. And yet the angel said explicitly, you're to be chatty about this, the disciples and Peter. I'm not sure what to do about that. Some scholars say this is evidence of disobedience. I see that, but I still still think that verse 8 is positive. And, and And I wonder if this is just a temporary snapshot. They've said nothing to anyone yet, but they will and they do when they come into contact with the disciples. If, if, if I ever ask you to raise your hand, which I never do and I'm not doing now, I, I am, I'm curious how this sits with you. Do, do you see that verse 8 could be very positive? And do you see that verse 8 could be a nice picture of what the Christian faith looks like? Maybe Mark didn't finish his gospel. Uh, maybe the original ending was lost. Uh, maybe 9 through 20 really uh, is the ending. But Mark finishes with this beautiful tension... Let me say something and ask if you've ever heard it before. I believe. Help my unbelief. You ever heard that before? Those were words that came out of the mouth of a desperate man. All of Jesus' disciples were unable to heal his boy in Mark chapter 9. And a demon has been in his boy since childhood. And the demon seems to want the death of that boy. Keeps casting this boy into a fire. And this man goes to Jesus and he falls before Jesus and he uh, begs Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I wonder if he's talking about his wife. Maybe he's talking about just his boy. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And when the man heard this, he cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. I would love for more Christians to utter that. I believe, help my unbelief. We are struggling in this present age, no doubt about it. And we should be crying out, come Jesus, come. And we should acknowledge that we're worried and that we're anxious and that we're depressed and that we doubt we should acknowledge that we take, we take uh, our love for Jesus and we turn it into a piece of machinery in which we pull the right lever and the right results are to come out. We do that, all of us. And what we might need a little bit more of is how Mark finishes his gospel in verse 8. A little bit more astonishment at the resurrection. A little bit more trembling before God. A little bit more reverence before God. A little bit more evidence That these words, I believe, help my unbelief, are the words of a Christian. Even for followers of Jesus, the resurrection is an astonishing reality that is easier to believe than it is to walk in. Nonetheless, he is risen. Let's pray. The oh, Holy Father, our Lord and Savior is risen. Jesus, you are reigning now. You are sovereignly in control. You know exactly what you are doing. We believe. Help our unbelief. Not for our namesake, but for your namesake. Amen.